Hello and welcome to Inside Fingal, the podcast that gives you an insight into the work being done by the councillors and staff of Fingal County Council to make Fingal a better place to live, work, visit and do business in. My name is Jerry McDermott, I'm the Media and Communications Manager here at Fingal County Council and I hope you'll stay with me as we continue to inform you about the work of your local authority. This is episode 17 of Inside Fingal and once again I'm going to be talking to one of my colleagues here in Fingal County Council about their job and the work they do. And there's no doubt that my guest today has a very interesting and important role as we will find out over the course of this programme. My guest is Hans Visser who is Fingal's Biodiversity Officer and Hans you're very welcome to Inside Fingal. Thank you very much. It's great to have you and biodiversity is a word we often hear at a lot about these days and we all have some idea of what it means but could you start by telling us what exactly is biodiversity? Well biodiversity is short for biological diversity and it kind of covers the the plants and animals and the places where they live so it could be anything say from the smallest algae to the biggest giant oak tree from the ant to a big whale and then also the places where they live whether it's your garden pond the woodland around the corner or the, the estuary or the sea it covers the whole spectrum of basic of wildlife that is out there that's a very vast subject it is indeed it covers a lot of different things and that makes the job interesting as well because like one day you might be dealing with like pollinator conserva- pollinator conservation work the next day you could be doing stuff at wetland development near estuaries next thing you're looking at like what we might be able to do for the marine areas of our coast um, and that i suppose the variety of that makes the job really interesting and, and have you seen a lot of progress in, in biodiversity? Like you've been in it for a number of years now uh, at, at this stage. Have you seen, a, like when I use the word grow, I mean awareness of biodiversity growing? Well, I've been at this job now for around 20 years at this stage. Um, there's definitely like more interest in it. Uh, people, I suppose, starting to take it more into account. Um, I suppose even the changes that we have seen where certain heads of departments are now saying, well, what can we do for biodiversity in the work that we do, whether it's housing development or roads development, greenway development. Um, we did not have to, when I started, that was definitely not the case. And now you can see a lot more people trying to see, well, what can we do for biodiversity? And that's not only in the council, it is also where we get approaches from companies, where it's like, well, what can we do for our grounds uh, here for biodiversity or local community groups? They want to do something. So I, there's definitely, I think people are aware that biodiversity not in a great state and they do want to do something about it. Like the importance of that for future generations can't be understated. So it's good to see that the level of awareness being there, basically. And what has caused that uh, increase in awareness? Is is it down to increased awareness around climate change? It's climate change as well, I suppose. Uh, but I think nature conservation in general as well. I think David Etterberg can certainly be credited for that with with all the the, the BBC's the nature conservation programs. People, I suppose, were kind of like I suppose they got to experience like nature up close, the beauty of the natural environment. And I think even COVID-19, I suppose, has, well, as, as negative as it was, brought its benefits in terms of nature conservation because a lot of people actually went out for a walk, they went out for a cycle in these natural environments and actually really enjoyed it. And, and I suppose that is part of what the benefits of nature actually brings indeed. It, it provides for a healthy environment where you can, I suppose, walk in or cycle in. Um, and I think that, that made people also a bit more aware of it. I think some of the older people, and because it's more through conversations as well, it's like, well, when I was a kid, I remember all these birds being here, or these plants being here, and nowadays they're all gone. Uh, like I say, from the farmers we work with, oh, I remember grey partridges, but most people nowadays, if you're a young farmer, no one has ever seen them. And yeah. um, so, like I suppose, people are aware of the changes that have occurred, 
And I think that also makes people a bit more aware, like, oh, we probably should start doing something slightly different to make sure we still have a lot of this wildlife that is there now that is left for future generations so that our kids can still experience these, these wonders of the natural world too. Okay. Um, before we start talking more about biodiversity and, and Fingal, can you tell me just a little bit more about yourself and how you ended up in Fingal? Well, like I'm originally from the Netherlands, um, and many years ago I did a practical training here with the Parks Department. Um, at the time there was no jobs going here, but uh, like as I, I continued my studies basically back home, and um, then there was a job going in the UK, and I needed a reference here for my former supervisor, and he said, I ah, know, like we have jobs going here at the moment, we're, we're hiring graduates. Um, so I suppose as a result of that I was able to start here as a graduate park superintendent sort of 20 years ago now at this stage. Uh, and I suppose I've liked it ever since. The idea was initially to come, like, I'll see, I'll see how I get on, see how much I like it. Yeah. But I thought it was, I had a great time. So, yeah, still here now. Yeah, still here <laughs> and obviously having a good time. Exactly. And, that, and, and you said there you came in just as a parks, working in the parks department and, and that sort of thing. How did, how did the jump to biodiversity officer come about? Well, like it's actually in the same year, um, the national government, the Irish government, they produced a national biodiversity plan, which required each local authority to to appoint a, a contact person for natural heritage issues. Uh, in the UK, they'd gone down the biodiversity route, uh, biodiversity officer route, and uh, at the time, I had a discuss with the, my then boss, Michael Lynch. Uh, like I said, like well, listen, I can take I can take on that role if you want because I'm 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 not a horticulturist by trade or or a landscape architect by trade like most of my colleagues. I actually studied nature conservation, um, and the whole idea then was to like well, can can I do that role? And so yeah, a month later I was appointed as the biodiversity officer for Fingal County Council. Very good. And so like I have a bit of a dual role. I do park development projects as well as nature conservation projects. But most of the park development projects I do are usually are very heavily influenced by nature conservation. So. Yeah. I'm going to digress here because you mentioned Michael Lynch and I've become aware of him in the last couple of years and the amount of work that he did and he was responsible for buying many of our regional parks and, and that he, he's left a rich legacy. Oh certainly like all the big regional parks in Dublin are largely down to him um, like, like it's, whether it's on the, the north side or the south side or the west side of Dublin like all the big parks he was I suppose the one who managed to secure a lot of those and so yeah there's a big legacy in terms of public open space in Dublin as a result of his foresight at the time. And, and has obviously made the parks development the parks departments not only in Fingal County Council but inside the other Dublin local authorities very relevant and very important then. Yeah, like he, he really showed, I suppose, what you can do if you have a proper parks department, the, the things you can deliver for the local community in terms of parks and open spaces. Let's turn back to, to biodiversity. Why, why is biodiversity important for a county like Fingal? Well, if you think about, like, I suppose, where your food is coming from to start with, um, like the, the, it's all, I suppose, the natural environment that provides the place, the soil and everything to, for you to grow that food. Uh, similarly, like you need the bees to pollinate it, your strawberries. Um, you need, like, if you, for the air we breathe, that's produced by trees. Um, so it's, I suppose, the, the nature provides the essentials for life, uh, where, or even clean water, like that you drink. So it's all these, all, all our, I suppose, the, the critical infrastructure for our daily lives is basically provided by the natural environment, and we we take it for granted. But I, I think I, I think you start seeing now less and less that we will we can take that for granted, and I think that's really I suppose where where the importance lies to actually conserve a lot of these uh, the, the natural environment basically to put more effort into that. You mentioned food production there, and of course, um, food production is extremely important in in Fingal. Yeah, I suppose like we're the the fruit the fruit and vegetable market for for Dublin. So like you can't understate it, like I suppose how important uh, the North County is for for food production in Dublin. All right. 
And, and again, like I suppose, like farmers often get a bad rap in terms of like, oh, well, it's all pollution. But I, I think at the same time, like there is ways that you can farm while still pro- producing high quality food and combining that with, with nature conservation. That's often usually put along the headlands of the edges of the field, which is the least productive part of the field, where there's actually space for wildlife. And that means we can keep on farming while also actually providing space for, for wildlife at the same time. And what's your relationship like with those farmers? Like, uh, you know, because farmers have certain ways of doing things and, and that and are sometimes maybe seen as being not open to change and, and using different methods and, and that. Um, you've obviously got to work with them and, and sort of show them different ways of doing things and that. How, how has that relationship worked? Well, look, we um, we reintroduced grey partage, I think it's about 10 years ago now at this stage, and we work with three farmers and we would just approach them and say whether they were willing to, to, to participate in this. This was pure voluntary, that there's not a government scheme or anything. We basically want to reintroduce partits in our county. Uh, and so we approached a couple of the local farmers and said, would you be willing to, to, to work with us on this? And like they were actually enthusiastic about it. So like what we did with them, we developed uh, sort of um, like along the headlands, we put particular mixes in there of grasses and cereals and wildflowers, which were basically strips where partridges can, uh, can rear their young and can find our food. Um, and again, that, uh, the, the measures that we took there, that we developed there over those number of years, basically provided the basis then for the, for the Department of Agriculture's gloss scheme uh, in terms of the measures that they had in there for grey partridge. So I suppose from that perspective, it worked very well. It was largely based on trust, like you know, the amount of, because I suppose we, we pay farmers to do that uh, sort of work. Um, and you, we, like, we just worked with them to kind of make sure that they, they didn't lose out financially, uh, because that was the basic, but also in terms of the practicalities that like the, these had, the, the headlands didn't get in the way of the uh, operations. So we had to learn a lot from them as well. But the whole idea was to come up with a solution that benefited both them and us. And I, I think that that certainly worked very well that, at the time, all right. One, one thing about Fingal um, is that it's obviously the fastest growing county in the country and its population has doubled since 1994. And a lot of the county would be unrecognisable from what it was like 30 years ago. How is that growth affected biodiversity? Well, there's two ways, really. One, I suppose, would be direct loss of, of natural habitats. Um, if you kind of look at the, I suppose, even if you look nowadays what we're kind of losing, it is a lot of, like, a lot of arable land and a lot of grassland, which unfortunately generally don't actually contain a lot of wildlife anymore just due to the modern farming practices. The hedgerows are usually the last remnant of where, where biodiversity tends to, tends to be. And as part of housing developments or road developments, unfortunately, like still a lot of those are taken out. Now, we, I suppose we have been trying over the last decade, certainly, to kind of keep, keep more and more of them. So at least there's still remnants there. But what you still see then is where you had birds nesting in them that were actually related to farmland. So they were more cereal-rated uh, birds. And they move out and a new set of birds move in, basically, because of the change of the environment from... I suppose as an agricultural environment to an urban environment. So there's there's changes there, and the other I suppose one of the I suppose one of the pressures as well is in terms of particularly with our coastline in terms of recreational pressures. Um, like the coastline is our most important ecological resource that we have. Most of our European jewels in the crown basically are located there, but it's also a major um, uh, like sort of tourism resource as well. It's very scenic brings down a lot of people and sometimes particularly like uh, like whether we have, where, we, where we had birds nesting on the beach a lot of those are gone now due to um like the dogs in particular basically chasing them off or eating the eggs and everything 
well also I suppose in the migratory birds sitting next to like uh, on the open spaces next to our shoreline and again people play soccer on those as well so it's they're the two key ones really in terms of development pressures that we have seen over the last over the last 30 years or so and what other challenges do we face in in protecting our biodiversity well uh, the, the the two other main ones really um well there's three ones really but I suppose one is is water pollution big problem for like particularly for our estuaries they're all I suppose classed like as in a, in a bad or medium state is now at this stage it just that's to do with I like whether it is runoff from arable or, or farmland or whether it's sewage treatment plants are not functioning properly there's a big issue around that um, we also then have invasive species and um, particularly on hold head it's a it's a big problem uh, where it's rhododendron that is invading uh, the, uh, sort of a lot of the, the heatland that is there. We also have garden invasives there also spreading over the cliffs. Um, and even as early in our woodlands on the mains where you have cherry laurel and snowberry, like in the past when the mains were planted, they would have been managed. They were ex-provided game cover, but uh, we don't manage estates that way anymore. And I suppose they have taken over large parts of the wood and nothing grows underneath that. So invasive species would be another big one. Um, and then sometimes actually the lack of management. Um, say say like um, hedgerows in urban housing estates, um, like hedgerows are actually man-made habitats. They were planted and they were managed in a certain way. Uh, and nowadays we don't do any of that anymore. And it basically goes from a dense hedgerow to eventually like like a gappy hedgerow, eventually to a line of trees. And it tends to lose its ecological value then as well. So lack of management, same also with some of the hay meadows. If you stop, stop cutting them, uh, a lot of the flowers will actually disappear. And you know that's nature. It's succession in a way. It's it's, na- it's a natural process. That, like because they're man-made habitats, they revert to their natural state. Uh, but unfortunately, we do. We can lose a lot of the the wildlife interest that's associated with if you don't maintain those man-made uh, habitats. And can the citizens of Fingal help you uh, in any way? And and do they help you and and your team to to do your work? Uh, yeah, no, like the like I said, like we have say on Holt, for example, we're working with the Holt SEO committee. So these are people that like they represent different community groups in Holt. They are very much involved in the decision making process as to how we manage the the, the designated site on Holt itself. And so I suppose from that perspective, we also I suppose have local tidy town groups we're working with at the moment to develop biodiversity plans for them to kind of uh, to see what people can do locally in their environment. So people can like a volunteer with the tidy towns groups to do whether it's cleanups or whether it is like uh, looking after hay meadows and the likes of that. Um, and uh, farmers have also great like there's also great scope for them to do things like need like whether they can leave the head lo- like uh, plant flowers along their headlands or uh, you know prune that hedge a little bit less tight or, or less frequent. So there's certainly like every anybody can there's a lot of people that can anybody can do so. Yeah. And and there's um, huge interest across Fingal and tidy towns groups and I know that you work closely with them. What, what sort of work do you do with them? Well, like at the moment, uh, we, we, we've got ongoing progress from Tidy Township. We want to do something for wildlife. And it's great to see such enthusiasm. So we really wanted to kind of work with them to kind of make sure we kind of sort of, that they do projects that really have like a good nature conservation benefit. So what we're doing at the moment, my colleague Deborah Tiernan, she's working with the 22 Tidy Town groups in the county. And we're developing biodiversity plans for each one of them. And those plans will kind of set out what we're going to do where in each of the towns. And the base provides a bit of structure then, so like every year they know exactly what projects are coming up, and they could be like um, urban bird surveys that people get involved in. So Swifts, for example, we're try- we would like that will probably be a project for next year. We want to find out well where are they, 
And then, like, if we have, if we know from historical records that they were there and they're gone, then where we can actually work with tidy town groups and local residents to install swift boxes, for example. But similarly, that we can do that for starlings, we can do it for bats, we can do it for for house sparrows. There's loads of different things we can do with them. Uh, but the whole idea is more to kind of we have a bit of a structured approach to that now, so everybody knows what we're going to be doing uh, with them. Coming in from the Netherlands and coming across tidy towns, what were your what were your thoughts on it when you when you first came across this movement that that is very much a national movement across the country? Yeah, they're a new one for me. Um, they don't exist. They don't exist back home. And I suppose it's an interesting one to see where uh, I suppose in the beginning that was very much about in the tidy towns. We tidy up everything. Um, and I think nowadays. I think like, you can't quite call them untidy towns, but you definitely see sort of a movement where we can allow some of the weeds to grow again and we can allow sort of wildflowers to grow because they also would like to see some of that. So like even that, I think, has changed a little bit as well. But yeah, that was a, it was a new concept for me that kind of our locals really get involved in the, in the local environment. It's, it's great to see, though. It's great to see such community spirit. Yeah, and, and that's been one of the game changers is you talk about the, the, the you know, letting things grow because I know it used to have to be pristine uh, entrances to towns and everything like that, whereas now people are probably more open to letting the grass grow during the summer so in order to help the bees and, and, and other insects uh, thrive. Yeah, like well, I suppose we like we 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 get both uh, both comments really. Some people would love to see more wildflower meadows, um, and then there's also a lot of people that say like, well, listen, can you please cut the grass because this looks untidy. Um, like I think the community at large is very much divided on this issue. Um, about ten years ago, we did a growing spaces, um, or growing places initiative. Where we live in in housing estates where we let the grass grow and there was a big backlash against that people did want did not want to see that they like it in regional parks, um, and in the bigger regional open spaces and that's actually where we kept it but in the housing estates at the time it didn't work so well we also had more practical issues there as well where the farmers that are taking the hay. Um, did not want to go into housing estates because there was too much, uh, like say, plastic in it or glass or cans and everything. So that was a practical issue as well. And we're, we're trying to work with that now to see if we can, like, I suppose, come up with alternative ways um, in terms of hay meadows. So we have so we have contractors taking it. We have also arrangements, say, in Holt, for example, where we maintain the meadows now, where we actually, like, work with local, local horse owners there. They take a lot of the hay from us. So, again, it's trying to find ways of what do we do with the hay once you have it collected, because otherwise it becomes a waste product and becomes very expensive. And we want to kind of have a more sustainable way of dealing with that. And even like one of the things that we saw recently is in the Netherlands and Belgium, Germany and the UK, what they actually tend to do, they have a sheep herder that goes into housing estates, grazes down the meadows in urban areas, and then sort of after two days or so, they take the sheep out and bring it with them. I don't know if we can do it, but I'm certainly tempted to try that this year somewhere just to see what happens. Well, I, that leads me beautifully into my next question because one of the things that really interests me about you and your role are the projects that you're involved in and the one that immediately springs to mind and, and especially after what you've just said are the goats on Hoth Head which attracted not only local and national interest last year but also international attention. Can you tell me about that project and, and how it came about? Well, uh, like I suppose it started all off with a, a wildfire management strategy. Like we have a big wildfire problem on hold and we're trying to figure out like, well, what are we, how are we going to deal with this? Um, so like we had international wildfire experts in to kind of look at that and they kind of said like, well, you need to create wildfire breaks, which are areas basically where you clear tall vegetation and you keep it nice and short. 
The clearing bit was easy enough, like where you just have diggers in and they pull out the gores, but then all the regrowth comes back, the seedlings come back in, and how do you deal with that? Like, were we going to spray everything with herbicides? Are we going to get mowers and diggers in to pull it out all the time? That is not a very environmentally friendly way of doing it. And I suppose even the Spanish guys were saying, like, well, you know, in, in Spain and Portugal, it's actually common enough to have goat grazing in wildfire breaks. We thought, well, we can do that too. Then we start to look, well, who would actually do it? Because there is no goat herders in Ireland anymore. Um, so we, we made contact then with the Old Irish Goat Society. They had goats available that, that could be used because they were actually goats that used to be on hold. We know that from old pictures. We used to know from the, some of the older restaurants on hold. They were able to tell us, oh, we used to have goats her, goat herders here. And they were able to tell us what goats they were as well. So it's like, well, we actually cannot. And the other thing we knew as well, and that, again from historical mapping, that we knew from the 1950s onwards, well, until the 1950s, there was actually a lot of livestock on hold. After the Second World War, they disappeared. And that's also when the wildfire problem started on hold, around that time, because there was no grazing anymore. And that allowed the vegetation to become really tall and a lot of gorse, so it became very flammable. So we figured, well, why not reinstate some of the old management, basically? And we brought in goats into Canada specifically to graze those fire breaks. Uh, say go, goats actually eat uh, gorse, they eat shrubbery compared to horses and cows that mainly will focus on grass and we wanted them to eat all this, the stuff that came up basically so um, and so we at least we had an animal then we had to find someone to herd them so that also was an interesting process uh, we had to uh, kind of advertise for that twice um, with, with, and it was a lot of publicity the second time around so we, we got a really good one like Melissa Joke is the herd, herder there uh, she had a lot of experience as a, as a teenager actually managing her own herd of goats and eventually she got a job and she has been very, very good. Um, and, it, it's, and it's working as well, which is even, I suppose, the initial result where we kind of see where we have, where we have had the goats now grazing those wildfire areas. It's actually working really well too. So we kind of hope to be able to expand it now to other parts of Holt as well. We've kind of done it on our own lands at the moment. And so we're working now with the other landowners on Holt to kind of, to kind of introduce goats in those, in those areas as well. So yeah, so far so good. And, and you've used technology. You, you, you've embraced technology um, to help you do, do the job. Yeah. So the um, like the, when we had uh, public consultation meetings um, like before, like we, we were kind of saying, we want to introduce livestock here and hold, and people were very adamantly we don't want to see fences here uh, because there's free access here at the moment as well, and it's a natural landscape, and the fencing would ruin that. So it's like okay, well, let's see if we can find something then to deal with that. And so we, we found this Norwegian system um, called NoFence, that basically like colors that, that the goats will have. And on your mobile phone, on your iPad, you basically delineate the area you want them to graze. And once they reach that boundary, it starts to beep. And if they actually reach the boundary, they get a small electric shock. Now, usually after the first electric shock, they learn, they, like, they learn to recognize the sound and they don't actually approach the boundary anymore. And it basically means that you can move them wherever you want. There's no need for fences. Um, and I suppose it was great even just to, to try it because it's one of the few places in Ireland where this technology is being tried and we kind of hope that it will kind of allow us to replicate this elsewhere in Ireland as well uh, because it means you can just use the mountain sites for example in the west of Ireland so because it's acting as a demonstration project so using this technology is an important part of that too. Have you been surprised by the positive reaction to the, to the project? Uh, well, frankly, yes. I was not expecting such a reaction that we got. Where, like, we even had a German television crew that came over to film film the project. Now, that's a, that's a first for me. Um, the um, even so that it end up in international newspapers and everything. I don't know. Like, it's goats just seem to seem to kind of bring out the best in people or something. I don't know. It was surprising, and it's it's good to see. I suppose it helps to promote the project as well because we're certainly getting a lot of inquiries now from across Europe. 
what we're doing, how we're doing it, uh, because wildfire problems are a common problem elsewhere in Europe as well. So I suppose even from a learning perspective, because we have always been approached by, by similar projects in Spain and Portugal, and where we can actually just talk to them. So what are you doing? What is working for you? So, you yeah, know, it has been very, it has been a very good experience. And of course, the, the wildfires you spoke about, we had bad wildfires on Holt Head last year. Uh, and that, are you sort of going into this summer, you know, as, seeing this summer as a test as to how the project has worked over the winter? Well, I suppose in, in, in terms of the areas uh, that have been graced at the moment, like we have only two areas now out of the five. Um, so I suppose we, when we hope to introduce those the goats in the other three areas now later this year, indeed, like we hope that it actually have a very positive effect. Basically, what we're kind of aiming for is is less large-scale wildfires. We're not going to stop wildfires from happening. That's not possible. But the whole idea with the wildfire breaks is basically that you can kind of you basically cut the landscape into smaller pockets. And those wildfire breaks are there for the fire brigade where they can intercept the wildfire. So the fire the fire brigade had to do their training as well. Um, and they know then, okay, like we leave the, the wildfire to get to this point here, and this is where we treat it. So, like, this is where we tackle the wildfire instead of just trying to deal with gorse fires, which is not working at all. So, and I think Dublin Fire Brigade have made the goats honorary firefighters as well. That's right, yeah, they're new, new colleagues, all right. Oh, like, I think for, from, a fire, from a fire brigade perspective, I suppose anything that kind of makes it easy for them to, to fight these wildfires is, is a good thing. So, yeah. And, and and the population of goats on, on Hoth Head, like you, you had the initial compliment, I think there were kids born this spring uh, as well. What sort of numbers are we heading towards? Like like when you have it at full capacity and you have the five areas covered, how many goats are, are going to be on the on the head? Well, frankly, we don't we don't quite know that just yet. Like at the moment, we started with 25 or 27. We got another 13 kids now this year, so that kind of brings it up to the 40. Um, basically, what we have to do, because... We have to monitor the impact. We don't want overgrazing to happen because that actually has much more, much more serious consequences as well. So basically what we're doing at the moment is just to see, okay, like we have 40 now, how much can we do with that? Um, we will also be bringing more males in from Mayo. They, they will be going into the denser gore stands because they will actually trash, trash that to kind of open it up and makes it then easier also for those areas that we do still need to clear that at least the machines will have easy access to them as well. So... Um, but again, it's very much a do it and learn approach, um, just to find out exactly what is the right balance here. At the moment, we don't know, but the idea is we'll just keep a close eye on it when you're doing the grazing projects, basically. Okay, and and I suppose that at the end of it, it's a new new tourist attraction for Hoth as well. Yeah, it has been very popular with the tourists and locals alike. Uh, like everybody just oh, like taking the pictures. They want pictures with the goats, with pictures with Melissa and. To be honest with you, I suppose it's a reinstatement of an old landscape use that was there. So I suppose it's like it, it, it works as a tourist attraction as well. And it's certainly like bringing in a lot of people that also even just want to have guided tours at the Go project and everything just to see what's going on. So, yeah, no, it has been it has been very interesting. And I think it's a nice thing. It was an empty landscape. And I suppose livestock is back there now. So do, do you find that uh, the old ways are sometimes the best ways and that, you know, we're, we're going back to how we used to do things because they actually were the right way to do it. Uh, yeah, well, say like if uh, just kind of coming back to what I mentioned earlier about sort of man-made habitats, uh, heatland is a man-made habitat as well. Um, it was a woodland, the woodland was cleared and a lot of livestock was put on it and you're left with heatland and heatland is now actually like a protected landscape in Europe because it's actually disappearing everywhere else. Under natural circumstances, it will change from from heatland into scrub, into woodland, and eventually disappear. That's what would happen under natural conditions. And so, again, by, by, I suppose, reinstating the old management that they used to have, it will actually keep that heatland open. 
Um, at the same time, though, we also want to allow nature to kind of have a bit more flexibility, like it's more into the context of rewilding, where you kind of allow nature also to, uh, I suppose, to change from solely heatland to areas with shrub, to areas with trees. And I suppose ultimately what we want is a very diverse landscape with the, because that will basically kind of provide a place for as many different or the biggest diversity of plants and animals within that environment. I remember being up in Turvey Nature Park just outside um, Swords a few months ago for a photo shoot and bumping into you, looking at a couple of JCBs, going about their work, creating a wetland development. Can you tell me a wee bit more about that project? Yeah, like over the last two years now, we have been increasing the amount of wetland in Turvey. Um, again, it's part of an overall rewilding initiative in Turvey, basically, where we actually want to restore the, the original hydrology of the site, as well as providing more wetland habitat, basically. So we've been filling in a lot of the drains, and we're creating, we've been excavating new, uh, new ponds and reed bed areas, and the whole idea is basically create more freshwater habitat in the park. We didn't have much of that uh, because it's right next to the estuary, uh, so most of it is actually all brackish, uh, brackish water. Um, and we kind of felt it would be useful just again to, as part of the overall to increase the overall diversity of the site by adding uh, by adding new wetland features to it, and it also at the same time restoring the natural hydrology as well. And you're, you're doing that in stages, and your first stage, by all accounts, has been very successful. Yeah, like like I suppose that that actually has been quite nice. You don't always know what you're going to get when you create these things. I suppose we we provide the conditions for nature to do its own thing after. Uh, we we basically excavate it. We don't plant anything. We don't sow anything. We allow nature to recolonize these places, and, and then we just see what happens. And again, like we monitor, I suppose the species that occur, and, and because we know then for the next time we want to do something like that, we know okay, well, in year one or year two these species like to occur in year 10 this is what you might get as well and uh, like if you walk to the to the place now so like because we have a pathway that literally sits in the middle of these wetlands uh, you can see coots swans moorhen ducks like it, it's great like if you want to see some wildlife that, that's certainly the place where you can walk through at the moment all right and hopefully we kind of hope similarly with the ponds that we did we dug last year uh, that we're going to get some unusual species in that as well but again we have to wait and see what happens and and during your, your time when you're digging it up, you, you often find some very interesting things as well, as, as you were showing me that day. Yeah, like we found uh, we found an organic layer, and that was a bit weird. And I know, like, it, it's, it, it's basically sort of, we, we, saw, we were digging in sea clay, and then suddenly you found this black layer in there, and we were like, well, what is this doing here? Because this is basically a bog at the sea. Um, and so we, like, we found a bog timber as well, and again, something we had never seen here before. Um, so we have been working with uh, with a lady in NUIG, uh, NUIG Galway, who is doing basically the analysis for us. And we now know at least the timbers that, that we found there are around 7,700 years old. And what basically what it seems to suggest is that there used to be a woodland there, like something with oak and alder, because she's doing the pollen analysis for us too. Um, and that basically tells us that what like uh, what pollen was there at that time. And that basically you can basically extrapolate from there what the woodland was like at the time. And that basically also means that the sea levels must have been a lot lower, meters and meters lower, for a woodland to be there where an estuary is now. Very unusual, like I said, so that's still that's still ongoing now, that analysis at the moment, but even the preliminary results for that for us were totally amazing. Yeah. Um, we currently have the Fingal Diversity uh, Action Plan 2018 to 2023. How, how is that going? Well, it's the, the the biodiversity plan we're developing now um, is basically for the next for the next eight years, so from 2022 to 2030. Um, the EU has set a target of halting the loss of biodiversity by 2030, so we kind of felt it would be appropriate to kind of follow the same timeline in that case because it clearly sets out what needs to be done. 
Um, so we have, uh, we, have, we have we prepared a plan that sets out around 100 actions what we need to do to halt the loss of biodiversity by, uh, by that deadline. Um, and it's out for public consultation at the moment. Um, so it, it's on the consultation portal for Fingal and it kind of describes like the, the different actions that are in it and um, what we're going to be doing over the next eight years. You talk about a hundred different action uh, plans. Um, can you give us an example of some of them? Well, it was like our flagship projects are sort of based around the Rochestown estuary and around Holt. Um, so what we basically will be doing is um, like we were developing the management plan for around Rochestown estuary. And then um, we're also kind of looking at the development of a nature education center in, in Turvey, uh, buying some more of the land around there for more wetland development projects. And in Holt, we're kind of looking indeed managing the heatland and the wildfire, the wildfire management in Holt. They're sort of the key, the key actions for the next for the next years. But there's still plenty of other things to be done too. Yeah. And how can people find out more about that 2022 to 2030? Um Biodiversity Action Plan. Um, if they look on the uh, consultation portal for Fingal, you can like it's it's like up on display there, and people can make comments between now and the fifth of July. We're also having two uh, public online meetings uh, that people can book on the website as well. Like one is on the fifteenth of June, and the other is on the twenty third of June. So if people want to ask questions or have suggestions for other actions, the idea we I suppose we really encourage people to make submissions and attend uh, the public meetings. That's great. Well, Hans, unfortunately, the clock has caught up with us. Uh, so I'd like to thank you uh, for joining us today and educating us on, on biodiversity and giving us an insight into some of the fantastic projects that you're involved in. As Hans said, don't forget to go to consult.fingal.ie to see the draft biodiversity plan. And remember, you have until July the 5th to make a submission. And if you want to learn more about those biodiversity plans, there will be two online information sessions with Hans, as he's just mentioned, on June the 15th and June the 23rd at 7pm. And you can book your place by going to consult.fingal.ie. Hans, that was absolutely enlightening and fascinating. So thank you very much indeed for joining us today on Inside Fingal. Yeah, no, thank you very much. So, my thanks again to Fingal County Council's Biodiversity Officer, Hans Visser, for talking to us about the great work he is doing to protect our environment here in Fingal. If you have any comments or suggestions in relation to the Inside Fingal podcast, please email podcast at fingal.ie. Remember, you can follow Fingal County Council on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube and LinkedIn, and also at fingal.ie. Thank you for listening. Until the next time, goodbye and stay safe.